We are in our message series on the life of Jesus, the time Jesus spent on the earth as a man performing miracles and most importantly teaching about who he is and what life is all about. And the life of Jesus is documented in four books within the Bible that are known as the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Three of the four were written by disciples who actually lived and did life and ministry with Jesus during his three years that he was ministering on the earth. The fourth Gospel, Luke, is a document by a historian and a physician who lived around the same time. And it's written as a historical document. And it's Luke's gospel that we're going to be in today. We're going to be in chapter 19. And I always say this, you don't have to agree with anything I say today. We're gonna teach what we believe the Bible says is true and it's our goal to let the Bible speak for itself. But what we do ask is that if you disagree, you take truth seriously enough to search and seek it out for yourself. That you don't just say, oh, I didn't like the way that sounded, but you go find the truth out for yourself. And if all I can do is annoy you enough to provoke you to go and study the word of God more deeply, hey, that's a great thing, I will take that. Well, last week we were taught a lesson on worship by the beautiful devotion of Mary who poured out her most valuable treasure, a perfume worth a year's wages in adoration of Jesus. And the great takeaway was that the only thing that really matters in worship is the question, was Jesus blessed? Was Jesus blessed? And I pray that that question is still ringing in your hearts and your spirits this morning, even as we worship after this message, that we will worship with the goal to bless Jesus above everything else. And this week we're going to see one of the moments that Jesus' ministry has been waiting and aching for. There are several moments in the Gospels, usually following some type of amazing miracle, when the crowd wants to grab Jesus, sort of lift him on their shoulders and say, he's the Messiah, he's the King, let's march to Jerusalem and let's take over from the Romans. And it'll say something like, Jesus slipped away from their midst. And then it will use this phrase, for it was not yet his time. And that phrase shows up multiple times in the Gospels. But today, his time in that sense has come in the text we're going to be studying today. And we're going to find that the reason it had to be this specific day that this event took place is because of the single most incredible prophecy in the entire Bible. I'm talking about a prophecy whose mathematical probability of happening, of coming to pass, is way past the mathematical definition of the impossible. It's a prophecy that if we had nothing else proves irrevocably that the Bible is supernatural and has an author who's not bound by the limits of space and time, and I'm not overselling it. It really is that amazing. And today, Jesus is going to enter the city of Jerusalem and for the first time officially present himself in public as the Messiah and the Son of God. He's not gonna say, who do you say I am? His actions are going to declare, I am Messiah, I am the Son of God, I am the Savior you've been waiting for, the one all the prophecies are about. The Jewish religious leaders wanted Jesus killed, but they didn't actually want it to happen over the Passover, which is this feast taking place in Jerusalem at this time. Because Jesus was doing things like performing miracles, and he was still very, very popular with a lot of the people. The religious leaders in Jerusalem didn't want an incident over Passover when there were one to three million people packed into the city of Jerusalem because there would be the risk of riots if they arrested Jesus as he was so popular. If there were riots, then the Romans would have 
to send in their soldiers for crowd control, and one of the things the Romans always did is clamp down whenever there was an incident like a public riot, and it would mean the loss of Jewish rights and freedoms, and the religious leaders didn't want that to happen, but Jesus was operating on his own schedule and his own timeline. He's in control, and he presents himself in Jerusalem at this time on this day so that he might end up being killed on the exact day of Passover when the lambs were being killed at the temple. For as both the apostles Paul and Peter tell us, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. And as we go through today's text, I'm gonna add some details that the other gospel accounts provide in order that we might get the most complete picture possible because this is one of the events that is actually documented in all four of the gospels. And we're gonna dive into the text in Luke about halfway through in verse 29, if you wanna turn there. Jesus is in Bethany, that town about two miles outside of Jerusalem, just on the other side of the Mount of Olives. He's eaten at the house of Simon the leper last night, where Mary worshiped him and poured out her perfume on him to, as Jesus told us, anoint his body for death. It's now the next day and we're told that he, Jesus, sent two of his disciples, verse 30, saying, go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus. So praise God, no matter how much of an ass you or I might be, the Lord desires to use us. Somebody should be saying amen to that if you know yourself. And according to the law, in order for a firstborn donkey to be owned and used for anything, it had to first be redeemed, according to the law of Exodus 12, by the offering of a sacrificial lamb. And here is Jesus, the Lamb of God, on his way to be sacrificed for all of us donkeys. Now don't miss the incredible control that Jesus has over everything that takes place between this point and his death. Everything that's going to happen, including his death, was planned an eternity before Jesus ever arrived on the earth as the babe of Bethlehem. And marvel at this little detail, that Jesus knew exactly where to send his disciples where they would encounter the owner of a donkey that had never been ridden, that would allow that donkey to be taken away by strangers with only the ex explanation, the Lord has need of it. It's astounding to me. Every little detail of Jesus' march to the cross is under his control. That's why he could say of his life with total accuracy, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. Write this down on your outlines. Jesus was in absolute control of his journey to the cross. Absolute control of his journey to the cross. And then we read, they threw their own clothes on the colt, the disciples did, and they set Jesus on him. Matthew's gospel and John's as well tell us that all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, tell the daughter of Zion, behold your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, 
the foal of a donkey. Matthew is referring to the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, which if you don't know, was written and recorded more than 500 years before the birth of Christ. And there would have undoubtedly been many in the crowd who would have understood the prophetic significance of Jesus riding in on this donkey as it relates to the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. You may have heard it said in some sermon, can you imagine what, what kind of king comes riding in on a donkey? But it was actually not unheard of. For you see, if a king was riding into a city proclaiming peace, he would ride in on a donkey. If, however, he came in hostility, With war on his mind and in his heart, he would ride in on a stallion. In this, his first coming, Jesus is coming in peace, riding humbly on a donkey. When Jesus comes again at the end of the great tribulation, Revelation 19 records that he will not arrive as the suffering servant, but rather the conquering king. Let me read to you from Revelation 19, far more than is necessary, simply because it's so flat out awesome. Revelation 19 says this, now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. He's on a horse this time. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That's you and I. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. See, there's the contrast. That's what takes place at his second coming. But here, in his first coming, Jesus comes as the king of Salem, the prince of peace, the one who said only this of himself, his only biographical statement during his ministry, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Write this down. Jesus came in peace at his first coming, but will return to make war at his second coming. He came in peace at his first coming, but will return to make war at his second coming. And we always need to remember, far better to meet Jesus, the one who came in peace, than to meet Jesus, the one who will come to make war. You want to be on his side when he comes to make war. John's gospel tells us his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. And don't you love the honesty of the gospel writers? So John, including himself, admits that as all this is going down, he and the other disciples are clueless. They're not thinking. A donkey, of course. Zechariah 9.9, the prophecy. It's so obvious. They're thinking, a donkey? Whatever, he's asked us to do stranger things before. They're clueless as all of this is going down. But then later, after Jesus has ascended, returned to heaven, after his death and resurrection, they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. So what changed? Well, Jesus rose from the dead, and I think that made the disciples reevaluate everything that had happened to them over the previous three years. 
But what also changed is that the Holy Spirit came into and upon these disciples. The Holy Spirit entered their lives and took up residency, made a home in their spirits. And when that happens in a person's life, they begin to see things differently. They begin to see clearly for the first time. And you know if the Holy Spirit has entered your life, it's even changed the way you perceive past events in your life. You see them differently. You see the fingerprints of God in events that might have seemed completely normal or mundane in your history. You now see the presence of God, the faithfulness of God throughout your life. John's gospel also tells us that a great multitude that had come to the feast, so a whole bunch of people that had come to Jerusalem for Passover, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. You'll recall that last week we read the city of Jerusalem was buzzing with talk of Jesus because everybody knew that the religious leaders in the city had ordered anyone who knew where Jesus was to report it to them so they could arrest him because they wanted to have him put to death and they, they wanted to do it before all the festivities kicked off. And because of this, everyone in Jerusalem was wondering, will Jesus show himself under the threat of death? So word is spread through the city like wildfire now. He is on his way. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. And people cut down the branches of palm trees and line the street that would enter Jerusalem, coming through the gate into the city, eagerly awaiting his arrival. Well, why palm branches? Why palm branches? That actually dates back to the Maccabean era, almost 200 years before this time, when Maccabeus and his son Judah, who had the best nickname ever, the Hammer, led a Jewish group of guerrilla warriors against Antiochus Epiphanes and the Syrians to liberate Israel from their occupation. And in 165 BC, they succeeded, and the people of Israel waved palm branches as a sign of deliverance and victory over the foreign oppressors. Well now, this almost 200 years later, they're waving palm branches again so you understand they're believing that Jesus is their next deliverer, except they're saying he's the Messiah who will inevitably be the next Judah Maccabeus, the one who's going to free Israel from their current occupiers and oppressors, the Romans. John keeps writing actually and he says, therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. So in other words, Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem with a group of people from Bethany, many of whom were also there in Bethany when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And these people are talking to people as they're going into Jerusalem and they're saying, yes, it's for real. He really did that. I saw it with my own eyes. And then it says, for this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. So the people in Jerusalem are there to see this miracle man, Jesus, that has affirmed his messiahship by raising the dead. And it says, the Pharisees therefore said among themselves to each other, you see that you're accomplishing nothing. You see, the whole world has gone after him. And so the Pharisees are infighting. They're telling each other, you idiot, we're, we're trying to take him down, but the more we persecute him, the more people turn to him. And so it has been since the ministry of Jesus. Our hope came through Jesus who was persecuted to death, but even death couldn't stop him. The church is born under persecution and religious genocide, and yet it explodes across the known world. And to this day, the church thrives, the gospel explodes, the miraculous happens wherever people try to kill Jesus and his message. 
And even if you don't know about it, in places where ISIS has control in the Middle East right now, do you know what happens where there are no believers? Jesus still shows up in dreams and visions to people. And if you know anyone who's ever come from the Middle East who is formerly Muslim, they will tell you that's how most Muslims get saved, is Jesus appears to them in a dream because you cannot stop Jesus. It doesn't matter what you do. Those who belong to him will belong to him. Verse 36, and as he went, as Jesus went, many spread their clothes on the road. This was an ancient sign of reverence that was reserved for high royalty, which lines up with the fact that one of the things the crowd called Jesus is king of Israel. And Matthew tells us that they also spread the palm branches on the road. Verse 37, then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, so he's over the hill, now he's going down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works, underline works, they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They're quoting from Psalm 118, which I believe I put on your outlines, which reads, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. We love to use that phrase to refer to anything, but in reality, it was in reference to this specific day. It's okay, you can still keep saying this is the day the Lord has made, because it's still true. But that verse is in reference to this specific day in history. God's people were supposed to rejoice and be glad in it because the Son of God, the Messiah, was being revealed on this day. And Psalm 118 goes on to say, save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. And save now is literally what the word Hosanna means. And we're told in two of the other gospels that the crowd shouted, Hosanna in the highest. However, we know that they weren't asking to be saved now from their sins, but rather from their Roman occupiers. And then Psalm 118 goes on to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we just read here in Luke's gospel how the crowd shouted, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, the crowd understands that Jesus is presenting himself as Messiah and they're showing their agreement with this presentation by shouting out lines from the messianic Psalm 118. So write this down. The crowd affirms Jesus as Messiah, as Messiah. The other gospel accounts add that people were also shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, and blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord, meaning he's come to fulfill the messianic kingdom that was promised to a son of David. You see, one of the things, one of the criteria of the Messiah was that he would come from the family line of King David, considered the greatest king that Israel ever had, and that Messiah would come from that line. So they're saying, yes, you're the fulfillment of that when they talk about their father David. And they call Jesus the king of Israel. So the terms the crowd shouts, the clothing they lay before Jesus, the palm branches they wave, prove unquestionably the crowd is acknowledging Jesus as Messiah. Those of you who are familiar with the gospel story know, however, there's a dark cloud hanging over this whole event. For in just five days, 
Jesus will be crucified. He'll be murdered in this very same city. And when given the choice between freeing Jesus or a violent, guilty criminal named Barabbas, the crowd of Jews will cry out, free Barabbas. We don't know if it's the same people that were in that crowd or this crowd, but here's what we do know. None of them were there at the foot of the cross when Jesus was raised. You see, they loved Jesus' mighty works. We underline that. But they missed his mightier message. They wanted their external problems solved. Get rid of the Romans. But Jesus came to tell them the truth, which is that none of the problems in our lives are ultimately the result of our circumstances. Every problem that exists in the world is ultimately the result of sin, our own or someone else's. And therefore, any real solution to our problems, any real solution to the problem of death has to deal with the issue of sin. Now, if you got rid of the Romans, everything would be better. If I was just totally healthy, everything would be better. If I just had my money problem solved, then everything would be better. If God would just fix my marriage or give me a new one, then everything would be better. You see, we like the crowd love the mighty works, but we often miss the mightier message that we have a a sin problem that lies at the root of all of our issues. And we need a Jesus to solve that problem more than any other. So write this down. The crowd wanted external deliverance when what they needed most was internal deliverance. They wanted external deliverance when what they needed most was internal deliverance. Verse 39, and some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to stop worshiping you as Messiah. This is blasphemous. This is scandalous. But he answered and said to them, I tell you, if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. You see, what God has ordained, man is powerless to stop. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, Psalm 19.21 says, there are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. You see, when God speaks a word, when God ordains an action, the universe will bend if need be to accommodate and fulfill the desires of God. Space, time, reality, physics, everything will move as it needs to in order for the will of God to be done at a word from his mouth because that's who he is. And what Jesus is saying when he tells the Pharisees, if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out is, listen, this has been ordained to be. It was decided long before the foundations of the earth were laid. And even if I told them to stop, something would step in to fill that gap, the rocks if need be. I hope that builds your confidence in the word of God because what Jesus is saying is listen, when something is decided in heaven, it doesn't matter what anyone on earth says. It's going to happen. What God has ordained, no man has the power or the authority to undo, it's impossible. Matthew lets us know that the arrival of Jesus in Jerusalem could be felt in the atmosphere of the city. Even those who did not believe in him could feel something was happening. In Matthew it says, and when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, who is this? So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. 
Verse 41, now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. Underline wept. You see, Jesus knew what was really going on in the hearts of the people. He knew what would happen in five days. And he knew how superficial all the celebrating was. And I don't know how you picture Jesus' mood as he's riding into the city, but it would have been anything but celebratory. Anything but celebratory. It would be like being asked to give a speech to an army when you know that everyone in that army is going to desert you as soon as the fighting starts. It says he saw the city and wept over it. So Jesus is coming down the Mount of Olives and there's this beautiful spot where everyone takes the tourist photos and you can just look over the whole city of Jerusalem and that's where he is. He looks over the city and he weeps saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, underline hidden from your eyes. He's speaking over Jerusalem, but he's speaking over Israel, the people. What a tragic moment this is for the nation of Israel because this is the moment when after three years of ministering among his own people, Jesus himself says, you're out of time. You're out of time. And you missed it. You missed me. Your Savior, your Messiah was among you and you would not receive him. And because you would not choose to see, you will now be unable to see. But as we know, this will not always be the case. For the Lord's not done with the nation of Israel. God is not through with the Jew. The Apostle Paul writes this in Romans 11. I put it on your outlines. He says, speaking to us, the church, for I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. So he's saying, when you look at the nation of Israel, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to come up with some explanation that you think makes sense. He says, let me tell you how it is. That blindness, underline blindness in part, has happened to Israel until, underline until, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. You see, the spiritual blindness pronounced by Jesus in this moment over Israel is a temporary state of affairs until the time when every non-Jew, every Gentile that is going to be saved has been saved. That time is going to be after the rapture and it's gonna be during the great tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel, the day, the time of Jacob's trouble. The blindness is going to be lifted and the Jews are going to recognize Jesus as their Messiah and be saved. Zechariah 12, we've read it many times, describes this coming moment, recording the Lord's promise. It's on your outlines as well. When the Lord says, and I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Again, that's written more than 500 years before Jesus' first coming, describing the time when Israel has their spiritual blindness lifted just before Jesus' second coming. Praise God, he's not done with Israel. He's not done with you or I either. God is faithful even across the millennia. And if you want to understand the Israel issue more greatly, I encourage you to read Romans 9, 10, and 11. It perfectly lays out Israel's past in Romans 9, Israel's present in Romans 10, and Israel's future in Romans 11. Verse 43, 
Jesus still speaking over Israel says, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side. You wanna talk about specific. This was, of course, the exact method employed by Titus Vespasian when he laid siege to Jerusalem 38 years later in 70 AD with the 5th, 10th, 12th, and 15th Roman legions. He surrounded the city on April 9th, cutting off all supplies and trapping the masses that had been in Jerusalem for the Passover and the just completed Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Romans systematically built embankments around the city, gradually starving the city's inhabitants. And they held the city in that pattern through the summer, defeating section by section of the city one by one. And the final overthrow of Jerusalem occurred at the end of the summer in September. Verse 44, Jesus says, and level you, underline level you, and your children within you to the ground. Again, this was literally fulfilled in 70 AD. The Romans utterly demolished Jerusalem, every building, every structure, the temple, and the people. Men, women, and children were slaughtered by the tens of thousands, and the few survivors were carried off to become victims of the Roman circus games and gladiator fights. In 143 days in that campaign over that summer, 600,000 Jews are killed. And historians estimate that overall, around a million and a half Jews died from the slaughter, famine, and disease that followed. Jesus goes on and says, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, underline one stone upon another. You see, when they burned the temple, the Roman leaders noticed that the gold which lined the inside of the temple was melting and dripping down between the stones and the temple. And so the order was given in order to recover the gold that every brick that made up the temple should be moved out of the way so that they could get the gold that had dripped to the bottom. And so absolutely, literally, Josephus and secular history records that the temple was torn apart brick by brick, one stone upon another. Not one was left unturned. And then Jesus says, underline this, because, he gives the reason why this is gonna happen, because you did not know the time of your visitation. That is heavy, that is, that is so heavy, because Jesus is telling us that what happened in 70 AD was a direct result. It was God's judgment upon the Jews for failing to recognize and receive Jesus, their moment of visitation from their Messiah. And he held them responsible for not recognizing the presence of Jesus among them because they've been given the scriptures that contain more than 300 specific prophecies enabling them to identify Jesus as the Messiah. The profile had been given to them in the scriptures and anyone who was a sincere seeker of truth, which they all were supposed to be, would have been able to recognize Jesus. And it wasn't a momentary season of judgment lasting just a few years. You see, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD marks the beginning of the diaspora, the scattering of the Jewish people across the earth. In fact, they will not occupy Israel, their homeland, for almost 2,000 years after 70 AD. They'll be scattered across the earth, a nation without a nation. It's a reminder to you and I of the seriousness of not recognizing Jesus when he appears in our lives. For in reality, the consequences are far more serious than this 
Because the consequences of not recognizing Jesus are eternal. They're eternal. It affects our eternity. Now, one of the reasons the Lord held Israel responsible for not recognizing him is because of one of the most amazing prophecies in the Bible, the most amazing prophecy in the Bible. While prophecies like Zechariah 9.9 and most of the other around 300 prophecies in the Old Testament tell how Jesus will appear, where he will appear, what he will be like, the prophecy of Daniel 9 told them when Jesus would appear to the day to the day, did you catch that? The exact specific date that the Messiah would present himself publicly. What we find in Daniel 9.25 is an appearance by Gabriel, an incredibly powerful angel, and the same angel who would later appear to Mary, the mother of Jesus, to give her the earth-shattering news that she's pregnant with the Son of God. So Gabriel appears to Daniel, who's been praying intensely for quite a while at this point. Daniel is a Jew who was dragged off to Babylon by the Babylonians after they conquered Israel and left Jerusalem in ruins because he was talented, gifted, and they wanted him for themselves. And this is part of what Gabriel tells Daniel. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. This is on your outline. Let me read it again. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The word that's being used there for week is actually the Hebrew word heptad, heptad. It actually means a period of seven years, just as we have decades in our dating system. In the Jewish calendar, which revolves around sevens, they have a heptad, a period of seven years. What Gabriel tells Daniel is that at some point in the future, someone's gonna give the command to rebuild the destroyed city of Jerusalem. And from the day that command is given, you can count ahead in time A total of 69 heptads, seven heptads and 62 heptads, seven weeks and 62 weeks. And you will arrive at the day that Messiah the Prince arrives. So this is what the prophecy says. There's going to be a command given to rebuild Jerusalem and Messiah the Prince is going to appear. And in between that time is seven weeks and 62 weeks, seven heptads and 62 heptads, a total of 69 heptads, 69 seven-year time periods. So would you agree that this is a very specific prophecy? It's pretty unbelievable given the amount of time that we're talking about. And I always say this, if you see a trailer on the Discovery Channel, you're going to watch to find out because Nostradamus saw a building on fire and people now believe he was talking about the events of 9-11. And it's horrendously vague, but we're like, that's amazing. That's incredible. The Bible is saying here, here's the specific day when Messiah is going to appear. The specific day. And I'm going to call it hundreds of years in advance. And even if you said, well, well, maybe this thing was staged, you can't say that because about 270 years before the birth of Christ, the Septuagint was completed. At that time, most of the known world, including Israel, was speaking Greek because the Greek empire controlled pretty much the world. And so they wanted to have the Old Testament scriptures canonized in Greek so they could read it in the language they were all speaking. 
And so they got the best scholars in the world together in Alexandria and they translated the scriptures into Greek. That project was completed about 270 years before the birth of Christ and we have actual documents from more than 200 years before the birth of Christ with this prophecy recorded. We have it, it exists, it wasn't staged. So what happens? Well history, secular history, tells us that on March 14th, 445 BC, March 14th, 445 BC, Artaxerxes Longimanus, the king of Babylon, gave the command to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. This is recorded in Nehemiah chapter two. You can go and read it. The command is given to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And so now we do the math, okay. A year in the Hebrew calendar is not 365 days, it's 360 days. So do the math with me. So we have 69 seven-year heptads. So 69 times seven, that comes out to 483 years, 483 years. So now to get that into days, we need to say 483 times 360, because there's 360 days in a Hebrew calendar. 483 times 360. That comes out to 173,880 days. 173,880 days. We're impressed because there's an urban legend that Babe Ruth called a home run that he was gonna hit pointed to where he was gonna hit it and then did it. God is saying, I'm gonna call when the Messiah is going to appear 173,880 days in advance. Just so nobody is confused, just so everybody knows this can't be staged, I'm gonna call it generations in advance. That date gets you to April the 6th, 32, A.D., April the 6th, 32 A.D. This is why the Bible gives us details like Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Passover. This is why it told us that the day before when he was in Bethany, it was six days before the Passover so that we can match the dating perfectly. And guess what? Secular history agrees that is the day that Jesus appears in Jerusalem that we're reading about right now. It's the single most incredible prophecy in the scriptures. It was called 173,880 days in advance. And some of you have heard this before, but if this was all you had, if you're wondering if the Bible is true, you can't find any secular example that is this precise. It's impossible to forge. And the only explanation is that the author of such a prophecy has a command of time that exceeds anything close to human ability or comprehension. The author of such a prophecy would have to know with absolute certainty that this event would take place on this day. It meets the very criteria that can only be explained by saying it's supernatural. Only God can have this perspective. It is incredible. 
incredible. And I pray as you go home and you think about this that you will just marvel and be in awe of this as you chew this over and meditate on this. The control that Jesus has when he says, no, today's the day. Today's the day. When God ordains something, it's going to happen and it's going to happen exactly the way he wants it to. There's no one like God. The Bible says he ordains and writes history from the end to the beginning. He writes it backwards so that everything is exactly as he wants. You can look through any other religious writings. There's no other religion, no other belief system that is built upon predictive prophecy that is proven by history. Christianity is provable because of predictive prophecy. There's no one like God. There's no one on his level. We know that the Old Testament contains around 300 prophecies relating to Jesus' first coming. What was the purpose of those prophecies? Well, certainly to authenticate Jesus as the Messiah, but more specifically, what was the purpose of those prophecies as it related to those people who were alive during Jesus' first coming? Unquestionably, we would all agree, it was so that they could recognize the hour they were living in and recognize Jesus. None of us would argue that point. The Bible contains more than 1,500 prophecies about Jesus' second coming. Certainly it's because Jesus wants us to know there's a plan and a hope for the future and that he wins in the end, but more specifically, what is the purpose of those prophecies as it relates to those people who will be alive around the time of Jesus' second coming? Is it not unquestionably that they might recognize the hour they're living in? Unquestionably. Jesus does not give hundreds and hundreds of specific prophecies so that his church can have the attitude of, oh well, it all works out in the end. Why bother with specifics? Ask the Jews who were alive in 70 AD when Jerusalem fell if prophecy matters and if God expects his people to care about those prophecies. We're not at risk of losing our salvation or anything like that. But unquestionably, the Lord expects his people to pay attention to Bible prophecy and recognize their place in it, especially those who are living in the season of history of its fulfillment. He expects that of us. Why did Israel miss her Messiah? Why did she miss her moment? Well, you see, it was because she had already built an image of who her Savior should be and what he should look like. Israel had determined that he would be a conquering king to solve the problem of Roman occupation. And one of the most frequent reasons we miss Jesus, why we can't seem to see him, is because we've already decided in our minds who God is. And if Jesus doesn't look like what we think he should look like, then we say, he's not God. He's not the Savior I need. We think our Savior looks like a house or money or a spouse or a career promotion or a life coach who says affirming things no matter what choices we make. And so we miss the one thing we really need, Jesus, because we've convinced ourselves that we know what we need better than he does. You see, Jesus was everything Israel needed and more. He was everything they didn't even realize they needed. And yet they missed him because they had already dreamed up the savior they wanted and they weren't gonna settle for anything less 
than the God of their imaginations. And that decision, that hard-heartedness cost them everything. May we not make the same mistake and miss Jesus because we've already drawn up his job description and said, if you look like this, if you're here to do this, then I'm interested. The only way to approach God, really get this, if he's God, then the only way to approach him is by humbly asking, will you please show me who you are? That's it. You do not approach God and tell him who he should be. You ask him who he is. And then you listen as he answers that question in every page of his word. You listen to who he is, who he says he is. In conclusion, I want to wrap up with these two thoughts. The God who was in perfect moment-to-moment control of everything is the same God who loves you and is with you and is in you through his Holy Spirit. And even when there may appear to be chaos outwardly, he is the God of every detail. His plans are never disrupted or broken by anything people do. He's already taken all of that into account. And so when God makes a promise to you, a promise to me, and he speaks in his word, understand it's not that his will must bend to the circumstances and decisions of man, it's that the universe will bend to accommodate his will and his word if need be. And you need to hold on to that confidence in your life. You need to hold on to that belief that he is God over every detail. And I'm so moved by the reality that God exists outside of space and time. And I love to share this point because it means that he doesn't make his promises to us in his word out of hope or intention or desire. He makes his promises out of foreknowledge. And what I mean by that is he's already seen them fulfilled. He is already where those promises are fulfilled. He's not just omnipresent geographically. He's omnipresent across time. He's already seen the fulfillment of the promises that he makes to us. He's already there. He's already feasting with us at the wedding supper of the Lamb. We're already there with him in God's omnipresent perspective. He's already been faithful and he's just been gracious enough to come back and record it in the scriptures for us who exist exist in linear time as a future report. This isn't what he plans to do. This is news, documented history from the future given to us. It's not an intention of God to never leave us or forsake us. It's a report of something that's already happened, delivered to us in the past in which we live. And God is saying, I have news for you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I have news for you about how the future plays out. I came to give you a hope and a future. I have news to give you what the Father puts in my hand no man can snatch out of it. I have news for you. This is documented history that has already taken place that God has come back to tell us about. 
so that we can adjust the way we live now in light of things that will absolutely happen that are unstoppable. And he said, I thought you might wanna have that information so that you could stop worrying in the present. I thought you might like to have that information so that you would know you can trust me. I thought you'd wanna know. That's why God gives us his word. There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. That will stand. Let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And, and I want to invite you this morning. I, I didn't know what the Lord was going to have us do in response to this, but I just believe and sense that what the Lord wants to remind us of is the fact that perfect love casts out all fear. There is no room for fear and anxiety in the people of God. Because I recognize in myself that when I'm anxious, when I'm fearful, I've lost sight of Jesus. And so I just want to invite any among us this morning who might be wrestling with uncertainty and anxiety and fear to lay those things at the feet of Jesus and to just reclaim the promises of his word that he's faithful, he's never gonna leave us, he's never gonna forsake us. He knows what we have need of before we even ask. That's not something he plans on doing, that's a news report from how this is going to go down. He says this is how it will be. At the end of your life you will declare yes, God was faithful. So why don't you let go of that fear right now, that doubt and that uncertainty. And if you're not wrestling with that this morning, then you just pray with me. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would release any among us who are wrestling with fear, with anxiety, with doubt, that you would overwhelm anyone in that place with your presence, with your power, and with your peace this morning. That the incredible reality that you are Emmanuel, God with us, would be a louder, more brighter, and greater truth than anything that we fear this morning, and that we would walk out of here today overwhelmed by that fact. You are Emmanuel. You are God with us. What a truth. What a truth that is. Father, we love you, and we bless you, and we thank you for your faithfulness and goodness to us. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, 
I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.